السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته. Can someone please kindly just check the sound for me so that we don't have the same mistake as we did uh, last week, the same error. Just someone confirm that they can hear me, inshallah ta'ala, as we begin. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wal-aqibatu lil-muttaqeen. Wal-a'udwana illa ala al-zalimeen. Wa-shadu an la ilaha illa Allah wahdahu wa la sharika lah. Ilahu al-awalina wal-akhirin. وشهد أن نبينا محمدا عبده ورسوله المصطفى الأمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على عبدك ورسولك محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد. So welcome to today's QP lesson and inshallah ta'ala today as I mentioned on the on the broadcast group on on the Telegram channels for those of you that follow the Telegram channels inshallah ta'ala today we're going to do another special. Uh, because opportunity for us to do specials now is becoming perhaps uh, less than it would be before. So before, because the surahs were shorter, you know, in a, in a academic year, we'd probably cover a number of surahs. And because the verses are shorter, every so often we're going to stop a surah. It's a good thing or a good time to do a special and then move on to the next one. As you can see now, as the surahs are getting longer, uh, it's taking us like maybe 10, 11 weeks just to finish a surah. And so therefore that's like something, you know, therefore doesn't give us as many opportunities and the surahs as you know only become longer and longer in the Quran. And that's why I want to use the opportunities that we do have before we get onto those very long surahs, inshallah ta'ala, where perhaps it may even take a whole academic year just to finish a single surah or maybe even longer uh, to finish a single surah. It's a good opportunity, I think, for us just to get in some of the sciences, some of the, um, uh, some of the biographies that we want to do, some of the other stuff that we want to do in QP because as I mentioned I think a number of occasions before one of our goals and objectives inshallah ta'ala through Quranic progression is not only to study tafsir but to also like equip inshallah ta'ala the student of tafsir with some of the or at least introduction to some of the major sciences that surround the book of Allah Azza wa Jal, other sciences of the Quran that help and serve the student of tafsir and that's done in two ways. It's done, number one, through those sciences that the scholar of tafsir requires, and we've done a number of them before, whether it's to do with recitation, whether it's to do with memorization, whether it's to do with uh, science of tafsir and other ulum al-Quran, sciences of the Quran. And the second way in which we do that, I think, which is also beneficial, is by studying the biographies of some of the famous scholars of tafsir and some of the methodologies of those scholars of tafsir. And primarily, we uh, focus on um, the, the, the authors of tafsir, so the books that we refer to as opposed to just generically the scholars of tafsir because the scholars of tafsir as you know are many they number in their hundreds but from those hundreds only a number of them actually wrote books that have survived to our time and reached us so on one hand it's, um, it's uh, beneficial for us to study the wider scholars of tafsir also I think uh, like some of the major scholars of the Tabi'een and others, these names that we often hear, Mujahid, what was his story, Qatada, what was his story, Sa'id bin Jubair, what was his story, Ikrima, Ata, all of these famous Imams of Islam. And even if we were to do a session maybe, and perhaps it's something, inshallah ta'ala, that we will do, where we do two of them or three or four of them even in a session, but we just do like a brief overview. That may be something which we will look at, inshallah ta'ala, at some point. Uh, but primarily as a priority, I think it's more... Um, maybe more important for a student tafsir to become more familiar with the books that he's going to or she's going to use as opposed to uh, just general biographies and so that's why we, we focus on that particularly uh, at the moment anyway so last week alhamdulillah we finished the tafsir of surah al-buruj and surah al-buruj we covered the last four verses last week in which allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
mentioned that the people of disbelief continue to be in denial, continue to reject, continue to to distance themselves from the signs of Allah Azza wa Jal, from everything that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent to them of guidance, of messengers, of revelation, they are in takdeeb, they are in a constant state of denial, a constant state of rejection. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is aware of them, for Allah surrounds them from every direction. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows of that which they do and knows of their rejection. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also has full control and power over them. He has ability over them, subhanahu wa ta'ala. They cannot escape him. They cannot hide from him. They cannot in any way withstand his decree or his command that comes down upon them. And from that which they used to deny, as we mentioned last week, uh, in the time of Quraysh, in the time of the Prophet wasallam, was the Qur'an. And that is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the penultimate verse of Surah Al-Buruj, he speaks about the Qur'an and the book of Allah Azza wa Jal and he calls it glorious and noble and full of honor. Bal huwa Qur'anun majid. It is a book that is glorious and full of honor, full of nobility, full of guidance and mercy and light and everything that people need in order to find salvation in this life and the next. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praises the Qur'an and then he says, Fi And he said that the lawhing mahfuz can either refer to the, or the mahfuz, the preserved tablet, the preserved can either be referred to the Qur'an. So it is, Or it's referring to the tablet itself as, it, as being preserved. And so those are the two qiraat that we have. And we covered a lot of that in detail um, last week. So today, inshallah ta'ala, the science that we're going to be looking at in today's special is the science of Gharib al-Qur'an. The science of Gharib al-Qur'an. And Gharib al-Qur'an, um, like just as a broad uh, translation of the word Gharib al-Qur'an or the title Gharib al-Qur'an, Gharib al-Qur'an would either be uncommon words or peculiar words or strange words. And inshallah ta'ala, when we come uh, to going through this in detail, if someone has a better translation for the word Gharib, because all of those I think don't necessarily don't necessarily, you know, like, don't sound as they should. Like in Arabic, gharib is used for a, a certain particular context, as we will see, inshallah ta'ala, in today's lesson. But in English, the word uncommon, the word peculiar, the word strange, each one of them, I don't think gives necessarily the same uh, the same right to this science that it should, or as it does in Arabic. But anyway, let's see, inshallah ta'ala, what we have. So, the science of gharib al-Qur'an is one of those sciences that the student of tafsir and the scholar of tafsir need. One of the major tools that the scholar of tafsir requires and the student of tafsir also needs uh, to a certain extent to be versed in and to be aware of is the science of the Arabic language. And that's Arabic language in terms of its vocabulary, in terms of its eloquence, in terms of its grammar, uh, in, terms of its, uh, in terms of what we call ilmul ma'ani and badi' which is to understand the the meanings of, of the Qur'an or the meanings of the Arabic language because different words in different contexts can mean different things and, and to understand the roots of the Arabic language as well in terms of the words of the Arabic language, uh, its lexicography, all of those things, it is extremely important for the student to know. And that, that's why we have, as we've mentioned before, certain tafasir that uh, just really focus on this. Um, so they just focus on the Arabic language, they focus on the eloquence of the Qur'an, they focus on the poetry uh, found within the structure of the Qur'anic verses, and so on and so forth. So this is something which is important. So the Arabic language is key. 
it is critical for a student of knowledge generally, but in particular for a student of Quran and Hadith. Because just as you have gharib in Quran, words that are uncommon, mean that they're not commonly understood by most Arabs, just as you have that in the Quran, then likewise you have that in the Hadith as well, in the Sunnah of the Prophet Because the Prophet would sometimes say something, and the companions would say, O Messenger of Allah, and what does that mean? What does that mean? And so like the hadith of the Prophet when he was speaking about the signs of the hour, and the Prophet said that knowledge will be lifted, and ignorance will become prevalent. And from the signs that he mentioned is, that there will be a great deal of haraj. They said, O Messenger of Allah, what is haraj? And that's, these are companions, Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Ali. These are companions that were Arabs. They spoke Arab, Arabic. They were known for their eloquence as Arabs. They were learned, some of them, in poetry. But the Arabic language is so vast and it is so wide and it is so, uh, it's like an ocean that has no, uh, that has no uh, shore that it is difficult for one person to understand all of those words. So they said, what is Haraj, O Messenger of Allah? He said, Al-Qatrul Qatl. It is indiscriminate killing, indiscriminate killing, meaning from the signs of Yawm Al-Qiyamah is a great deal of indiscriminate killing. And so as we will mention, because one of the things that we will mention today is the statement of Imam Shafi'i, Rahimahullah ta'ala, that he said that no person knows and masters any language except for a prophet of Allah. No person is a master of a language, meaning there is not a single person alive that has mastered the language, whatever language it may be, English, Arabic, Urdu, Farsi, uh, whatever language it may be, Spanish. No one knows the whole of that language, understands it all, its context, everything, except for a prophet. Allah Azzawajal gives a prophet that knowledge because then they are able to know and understand and also deliver the message of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, if that be, with that being the case, the Arabic language is something which is extremely important for the student to know. From that which then comes as a result of that, because it's important then for the student of Arabic to know, for example, grammar, to understand the grammar of the Qur'an. And therefore, because the grammar changes, right? It changes from... Uh, as we said, as, as we just gave the example last week in the Qira'at of depending on which Arab you choose, which grammatical uh, framework you choose is either going to be a description of the tablet or is going to be a description of the Quran, the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we've given a number of examples of this uh, within Surah Buruj and before Surah Al-Buruj as well. So therefore, that, that's one thing that the student needs to know. But also what's important for the student to know is this particular science, and that is the science of Gharib al-Qur'an. Words that are not known to the Arabs commonly, they're not used commonly, or they weren't used anyway in the time of the Prophet and even today, to be very honest, they're not known. So if you were to go to most Arabs who hadn't studied tafsir, they hadn't studied uh, the Qur'an or it's a trans translation or whatever it may be. And they're Arabs. They speak Arabic. They're born in Arab families. They come from an Arab culture. Maybe they don't even live in the UK. They come from, you know, you can go to Yemen or Egypt or any of those places. And you come to them and you say, what is the meaning of وَمِن شَرِّ غَاسِقٍ إِذَا وَقَبْ What is غَاسِق? What is وَقَبْ? They may not necessarily know. In fact, I think that many of them wouldn't know because these words are not commonly used in everyday normal Arabic language. If you were to come to someone and say, وَالْعَادِيَاتِ ضَبْحَا فَالْمُورِيَاتِ قَدْحَا فَالْمُغِيرَاتِ صُبْحَا فَأَثَرْنَ بِهِ نَقْعَا فَأَوْسَطْنَ بِهِ جَمْعَا What's that referring to? What does it mean? I think that many Arabs would struggle today to be able to tell you, unless they've studied tafsir or they're familiar with, that, with what that surah is referring to, what those verses are referring to. But just 
by virtue of the Arabic language, I don't think that they would necessarily know. And that is because the Quran is the most eloquent of, of speech. The Quran contains words that are Arabic, that are, uh, that are formal Arabic, eloquent Arabic. But the Arabs didn't necessarily understand and know all of them. And you have a number of these examples, inshallah ta'ala, as we will see, that even in the time of the companions, they used to ask those types of questions. So from there we get what we call Ghalib al-Qur'an. And, and also from this you can then see, as we will speak inshallah ta'ala about it in a little while, but you can see then that the essence of this language, or the essence of this science and its origin comes from the time of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa Because the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa understood that these companions, there were certain words that they weren't familiar with. Gharib al-Qur'an. And so like in the hadith where they would say, O Messenger of Allah, what does that refer to? The Prophet explains it. Likewise, you have similar examples within the Sunnah of the Prophet, uh, within the Sunnah of the Prophet, but speaking about the Quran and the Book of Allah Azza wa Jalla, O Messenger of Allah, what does that refer to? What is that referring to? And the Prophet responding and replying and mentioning it. And that is because sometimes what the Gharib al-Quran is referring to is not just the, the word that is peculiar or strange or uncommon but rather the word that can have multiple meanings, but in this context it's referring to a single meaning. What is that meaning that it's referring to within that context that can also come under the science of Gharib al-Qur'an? So, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let us start off with what the word Gharib means. So the word Gharib in the Arabic language means something which is hidden and unfamiliar. In the Arabic language, linguistically, the word Gharib refers to something which is unfamiliar, something which is strange, something which is hidden. And some of the scholars said that the essence of this word refers to or goes back to something which is far away. Meaning it's not something which is known, not something which is close by. Certain words everyone knows and understands. But even in the English language, sometimes you hear a word and you're like, I know that's a word, but what does it refer to? What does it mean? What context can it be used in? It's not something which you know necessarily, even in the English language. So the word gharib refers to something which is unfamiliar, something which is strange, something which is hidden, something which is unknown. And from that you get the, uh, the word in, in the hadith, the famous hadith of the Prophet وسلم, in which he said, uh, Indeed, this religion, Islam, began as something strange, and it will return to being strange, so glad tidings be to the strangers. So the Prophet ﷺ used the word gharib in the hadith. Gharib means that Islam when he first came in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, was strange and unknown to those people. The Prophet ﷺ came with tawheed, he came with salah, he came with zakah, he came with don't drink, he came with don't fornicate, he came with don't steal, he came with don't kill, he came with everyone is equal except by taqwa. All of those principles that were unfamiliar, they were strange, they were unknown to the Arabs of that time. So Islam began as strange. They would look at those companions, those few Muslims at that time, and the Prophet ﷺ, and they would consider them to be weird, to be crazy, to be not normal, what the norms were in terms of their society. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, gharibah, And Islam will become once again strange, meaning towards end of time, Islam becomes more and more strange, meaning the people holding on to the pristine Islam, its teachings, the pure teachings of the Quran and the Sunnah, become fewer and fewer and fewer. And so what they do, even though what they're doing is correct, they're upon guidance, they're upon Quran and Sunnah, but the vast majority of people, and as an Imam Abu Bakr al-Jurri, rahimahullah ta'ala, the famous Imam of Islam, he has a book called Kitab al-Ghuraba. He took a book 
or he took these hadith, all of them that speak about this concept, and he put them into a book called the Book of the Strangers. And one of the things that he mentions is that sometimes the people that consider you to be strange may be fellow Muslims, they may be from your own family, but because of their distance from Islam, because of their lack of understanding of their religion, because of how weak their iman has become, they will have things and practices that they will consider to be quote-unquote Islamic. And so when you don't follow those practices or you do something different because the Qur'an then says to do that instead, they will look at you as being the strange ones. And so the scales or the standards are flipped upside down. They're changed. And so he has, uh, it's an amazing book, Kitab al-Ghuraba. It's a nice book, it's not a long book, but he gathers these different narrations in which it is mentioned as well as some of the scholars or the statements of the scholars of the Salaf concerning what he means to be gharib, to be someone who's a stranger. For Tuba lil the Prophet said, so glad tidings be to the stranger. So that's the meaning in terms of the linguistic side. As a science, it refers to those words in the Quran, in the book of Allah Azza wa Jal, that are not easy to understand. They don't come from, or they're not known to the not known to the to the Arabic speaker. Uh, by by normal everyday conversation and the way that then he would understand what those words mean is one of two ways number one either through text so like we have a text from the quran the quran explains what it means like allah says then allah explains what it refers to for example or the prophet doing so or one of the companions of the tabi'in telling us what it refers to and the second way is through the arabic language itself that you go back to the dictionaries, you go back as we now have you know, all of those uh, sources and references that we can go back to that would actually explain what that word is. And from those references would be books of Gharib al-Quran because those scholars have done that hard work for us and brought those books together. Uh, so that's what it refers to in terms of it being a science. It refers to those words in the Quran that are not easily understood or known to everyone and therefore require further explanation and clarification and as we said just as you have gharib al-quran there is also a science called gharib al-hadith the science of gharib words in the sunnah and that's something which also the scholars refer to and they focused on um, abu hayyan the scholar of tafsir that we often refer to in our classes abu hayyan rahimahullah ta'ala he has uh, a statement of his regarding this particular issue which is gharib because one of his one of as we've said before one of the things that he focuses on in his tafsir is language, Arabic language. And from that is his focus on Gharib al-Quran. So Abu Hayyan says that when it comes to the language of Arabic in the Quran, it is of two broad categories. The first of them is that which can be understood by the majority of Arabs, meaning they understand because they are common words. And that is the majority of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, by the way. The majority of the Quran is understood by you knowing the Arabic language. When Allah Azza wa Jal says, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ قَالُوا رَبُّنَا اللَّهُ ثُمَّ اسْتَقَامُوا تَتَنَزَّلُ عَلَيْهُمُ الْمَلَائِكَةِ Allah Azza wa Jal says, if you were to begin right from the first surah, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, Maliki Yawmiddin, Iyaka Na'budu wa Iyaka Nasta'in, all of these verses, the vast majority of the Qur'an is understood by the Arabs. So they understand words that are used in the Qur'an, like the word As-Sama' refers to the heavens and the skies, Al-Ard refers to the earth, Fawq and Taht, over and under. Uh, all of these words that are often used within the Qur'an, the Book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, 
the Arabs, by virtue of knowing the Arabic language, will understand it. And that is the majority of the Qur'an. And that is why someone who studies the Arabic language, even as a non-Arab speaker, but they study the Arabic language, they go and learn Arabic, they study Arabic, they speak Arabic, for them they will be able to understand a great deal of the Book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They will be able to understand much of it in terms of the Arabic and what it's referring to. The second category that Abu Hayyan ta'ala, refers to is that which only the specialists will know. Those who have become experts in the Arabic language. Those who have dedicated their lives to studying the Arabic language. And that's something which requires further study. It requires people to take this as an expertise to know the Arabic language and its many different words and many different contexts in which those words are used and so on and so forth. And that is, he says, what is being referred to as Gharib al-Quran. Those words are unfamiliar, unknown, that you would have to go and research, learn about, study. That's what often you will find is the focus of Gharib al-Quran. Gharib al-Quran. And that's why you have, when you look at the books of Gharib al-Quran, you will often find that the titles of those books are titled in three different ways. So when you come to, how do you know that the book is Gharib al-Quran? They will often refer to it in three different ways. And that goes to those points that, um, that Abu Hayyan mentioned. The first of them is that the title is Gharib al-Quran itself. So the title of the book is Gharib al-Quran. The second title that you will often find is Al-Fadh al-Quran or Mufradat al-Quran. Words in the Quran or terminologies or terms found in the Quran. And the third title that you will find is Kalimat al-Quran. All these three commonly you will find all of them are referring to one and the same science. So whether it's words of the Qur'an, whether it's called terms found in the Qur'an, whether it's called uncommon words in the Qur'an, all of them are referring to one and the same thing. But as we you know, know, different scholars will call their books different things. This science is extremely important, as we said, for the student of tafsir to know. Uh, Mujahid, rahimahullah ta'ala, who's one of the great scholars of Tafsir, as we know, the student of Ibn Abbas, عنhuma, he said, he said, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, that it is not allowed for someone who believes in Allah and the last day to speak about the book of Allah Azza wa Jal if he is not familiar with the many languages of the Arabs, meaning the many dialects of the Arabs. Because sometimes, and this is the beauty of the Quran, and this is something which you will find in the Qiraat, the Qiraat, many of them come from the different languages, the main languages and dialects of the Arabs used to speak. And so, you have the Lugha of Quraysh, right, which is the, the, the language used by the people of Quraysh. And that's the Asr, because that's the way that it was revealed to the Prophet But you have the other Lugha, the Lugha of Bani Tamim, the Lugha of, of, of Banu Hanifa, the Lugha, all of these major Lughas, major dialects that were being used and spoken throughout the Arabian Peninsula. The Quran was revealed, incorporating those different dialects as well. And that's why certain words are not known to the Qurayshi speakers. They're not known to them. And so they are used, or they are, they, 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 as Mujahid says, that the one who wants to make tafsir of the Book of Allah needs to have knowledge of those different dialects of the Arabs and the way that they used to speak. So to understand that is extremely important. He said, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, continuing Mujahid, وَلَا يَكْفِي فِي حَقِّهِ مَعْرِفَةُ الْيَسِيرِ مِنْهَا It is not sufficient just to know a little bit of that. But rather, one must know all of this. فَقَدْ يَكُونُ اللَّفْظُ مُشْتَرَكًا 
Because someone may come across a word that has a dual meaning and he only knows one of those meanings, but what is intended in the verse is the other meaning. Like for example, and we will give examples of this anyway, but like for example the word as-salah. As-salah has a linguistic meaning and it has a technical shari meaning. The linguistic meaning means to make dua, make dua for them, supplicate for them. And then the shari meaning is the salah that we refer to, which is the prayer that we offer five times a day. In the Quran, both are used. Allah Azza wa says, وَأَقِيمُ الصَّلَاةِ Establish the salah, meaning the one that you offer five times a day. And then Allah Azza wa says also, وَصَلِّ عَلَيْهِمْ إِنَّ الصَّلَاةَكَ سَكَنٌ لَهُمْ And pray for them. For verily your prayer, meaning the Prophet your dua, your prayer for them, is something which brings them tranquility. And so both are used in the Quran. Salah in this linguistic way. And so that's why Mujahid said that sometimes if you don't know that certain words have multiple meanings or dual meanings, you may think that it's referring to one, but it's referring to the other. And that's why someone who didn't know that that's the salah that's being referred to here would say and pray for their meaning and make salah. It's allowed for you to make salah on behalf of someone else. That's what they would understand, that that means that you can pray on behalf of someone else, meaning as offer the salah. But what he means by the prayer here is dua. You can supplicate for them, make dua for them. And that is why Imam Malik, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said that if I ever come across a man who doesn't know the different dialects of Arabic, doesn't know and have a very good grasp of the Arabic language and is making tafsir of the Book of Allah, I will make an example out of them. And that's because the Salaf was strict when he came to this issue of making tafsir of the Book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And um, you, you will see uh, many examples of this within uh, within the books of, of, of the scholars in, in Quran and so on. And if you go over them, you will see many examples of this. And that's why Imam al-Suyuti, or al-Suyuti, rahimahullah ta'ala, Jalaluddin, he said, to know this science, meaning Gharib al-Quran, it is essential for the Mufassir, it is essential for the scholar of tafsir. And that's because even from the time of the companions, as we said, this science began from the time of the companions. So in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ would explain certain terms that are either known to them or the context, the meaning in this particular context is unknown to them. So for example, in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, the verse of fasting which Allah says, and then fast when or begin the fast when you can differentiate the khaytul abyadu min al khaytul aswad, the black string from the white string, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in that verse in Surah Al-Baqarah, that is when you begin your fast. The companions, it is mentioned in some of the narrations, I think it's Al-Mughira ibn Shu'bah radiyallahu anhu, if memory serves me correct, uh, in the hadith that he said that I thought what he meant is I literally had to take a string that was black, a string that was white, and I would have them in my pillowcase, and then I would hold them up in front of me at the window to see when I could be able to differentiate between one and the other. And then the Prophet told me, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, no, that's not what he means. It's not literally take two strings. What he means by the black string is the night. And what he means by the, the white string is the dawn, when light starts to appear in the sky. Likewise, the, the, the verse in which Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala says that those who do good, وزيادة, for those who do good, they will have what is good, meaning reward, and they will have more than that. And the Prophet Sallallahu said in the tafsir that refers to, uh, seeing the face of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the believers on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. The verse in which Allah Azza wa Jal says, وَلَقَدْ آتِيْنَاكَ سَبْعًا مِنَ الْمَثَانِ We have given to you the seven oft-repeated verses. 
the Prophet in a number of hadith, he said that, that those seven repeated verses are Surah Al-Fatiha. And so the Prophet used to do this. And that's why the companions understood the Book of Allah Azza wa Jal, because the Prophet would explain it to them. And obviously the knowledge of Arabic was very, very good anyway. But that's why you have examples of those statements of the companions such as Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu saying that which earth will hold me, which sky will shelter me if I speak about the Book of Allah without any knowledge. And the statement of Umar radiallahu anhu when he came to the verse in Surah Abasa, وَفَاكِهَةً وَأَبَّا When Allah Azza wa Jal speaks about the many blessings that he bestowed upon mankind and from them is the fruits and the herbage, the, the vegetation that grows from the earth. And then he said, what is Ab? I don't know what this Ab is, meaning that I understand what Ab is, but I don't really know the reality of what Allah Azza wa Jal is referring to, which type of shrubbery and, and herbage, because there is so many types that grow upon the earth. And then he said, this is something which you don't have knowledge of, O Umar. And the statement of Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah, that he said that I came across a man that I never used to understand what the meaning of the word Fatir was, that Allah Azza wa is Fatirul Samawati Wal Ard. What does the word Fatir mean? And so he said, until I heard an Arab man debating with another Arab, saying about a well that he dug, Ana aftartuha. I am the one who did this, meaning I originated this well, meaning I was the one who first dug it, that the Fatir is the one who originates creation from the beginning the first time. And so you have a number of these examples of companions either understanding what the verse is referring to from the Prophet ﷺ, and that's what we said, what we call athar, through text, or they understand it through the Arab language, Arabic language. And in that time, that meant understanding it from the Bedouin Arabs, the people who used to know the pristine Arabic language, and they used to preserve it in that time as we are familiar with. And so as the companions then spread out across the Muslim ummah, as we know, with the Muslim conquests and expansion, one of the major things that they would teach to people when they went, so Ibn Abbas comes to Mecca, Ibn Mas'ud goes to Kufa, other companions go to Sham, like Abu Darda, others go to Egypt, others, they spread across what was the Muslim world at that time. The major thing that they are teaching people is the Quran. Yes, they're teaching them Sunnah, they're teaching them how to pray, they're teaching one of those things, but one of the major things that they would focus on is the Book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why we know that the companions disliked writing and recording hadith for the most part because they didn't like people to have to become or they feared that some people will become confused between what is Quran, what is Sunnah. So they used to focus on the Book of Allah Azza And from that focus is Qiraat, it's Tajweed, it's all of those sciences that relate to the Book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but not only in terms of recitation, but also in terms of understanding. Tafsir is a major thing, and that's why one of the, the most narrations that you will find from some of the companions is to do with tafsir of the Qur'an, something which they spoke about a great deal, the tafsir of the Book of Allah Azza wa like Ibn Mas'ud, like Ibn Abbas, like Ibn Umar, like Ibn Zubair, like Uthman and Ali, a number of the companions, radiallahu anhum ajma'in, and from that also would be Gharib al-Qur'an. They would be referring to Gharib al-Qur'an, and that's why one of the first sciences that was ever written or one of the earliest sciences that was started, that was recorded, was the science of Gharib al-Qur'an. It's from those very early sciences, very early sciences that the scholars started to write in and started to record, and record in a way that was important, because as we know from the earliest books that we have, that the scholars started, and we're talking about the generation of the Tabi'in now, because the companions didn't write anything, they didn't record anything in that way. So the earliest books that we have are from the time of the Tabi'in, their students. And obviously the Tabi'in 
is a long, spans a long generation, right? There's many people, there's senior tabi'een, there's junior tabi'een. So you, it's a whole generation of people that's, that is spanned that we call the tabi'een. But you have a number of important sciences that now start to be written in the time of the tabi'een. And you will find that from those sciences that they first started to write and record are sciences to do with the Book of Allah Azza wa Jal. So for example, al-nasikh wal-mansukh abrogation in the Quran. It's one of the first things that they wrote about. Why? It's so important to understand which part of the Quran has been abrogated because sometimes the recitation is there but the ruling has been abrogated and sometimes vice versa. So to understand that is extremely important. So they would speak about Nasikh wal Mansukh. And from those early sciences is the science of Gharib al-Quran. And that's why it said that from the earliest or one of the earliest people that wrote about this was Ata ibn Abi Rabah Rahimahullah Ta'ala, the famous student of Ibn Abbas, the Imam of Tafsir. He has a book on Gharib al-Quran. And there are many, by the way. So there's like, you know, like you could go through every generation and there's books out there, uh, studies that have been done or, or, or now uh, theses that have been written on Gharib al-Quran, where you will find that the researcher, what they did is that they went through every generation or every century of Islam. So the first century, second, third, they went through every century of Islam and all of the books that were written in those centuries, they mentioned them. And there's so many. In every generation you will find, from the time of the Tabi'een, a number of books that were written in the Quran in every single one of those centuries of Islam. But from the earliest that you will find, and what I did is rather than mentioning all of them, I wanted to mention to you some of the famous ones in terms of the authors, names that you would have heard of, come across because we mentioned them in QP, or you'll have come across elsewhere to show to you how many of the great Imams of Islam wrote in this topic. So Ata rahimahullah ta'ala from the Tabi'een wrote in Gharib al-Quran. And there were a number of the Tabi'een by the way that wrote from the contemporaries of Ata. Some of them before, some of them slightly after. But around that generation of Ata, they wrote concerning Gharib al-Quran. From the most famous Imams that wrote in this science was an Imam Malik. Imam Malik has a book called Gharib al-Quran. Uh, from the famous Qurra, from the Imams of Qira'at, Ali al-Kisai. Al-Kisai is one of the Qira'at of Kufa, one of the seven. And Abu Ja'far was one of the ten. Both of them mutawatir. Both of them wrote in Gharib al-Quran. And that's because they were people who were focused on the Quran, but they understood al-Kisai, especially because he was also a, ling- a linguist and a grammarian. He's one of the f- most famous scholars of the Arabic language and his grammar. Al-Kisai wrote in Gharib al-Quran. Qutrub is another one, another famous scholar of, of the Arabic language. He has a book in Gharib al-Quran. Abu Ubaid al-Qasim ibn al-Salam from the contemporaries of Imam Ahmad has a book called Gharib al-Quran. Ibn Mubarak, Abdullah ibn Mubarak, the famous Imam of Islam and Muhaddith, he has a book called Gharib al-Quran. Imam al-Tabari has a book on Gharib al-Quran. Ibn Abi Dawood, the son of the famous Imam Abu Dawood, the Muhaddith, the scholar of Hadith, who has Sunan Abi Dawood, his son Ibn Abi Dawood, who is also the famous uh, author of the poem al Ha'iya in Aqeedah, he has a book on Gharib al-Quran. Ibn Qutayba has a book on Gharib al-Quran. These are some of the Imams, but I just want to mention just 10 of them from the famous Imams of Islam, and there are many, many more. And if we had the time, we'd go through all of them and we'd speak about them. But they were wrote in, in, in this science called Gharib al-Quran and that's because of its importance because one of the most important things that a student needs to do of Islam is to understand the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and one of the things that they, for, they require is to understand what we call Gharib al-Quran what are those words 
that are unfamiliar that Allah Azza wa Jal uses in the book of Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala and why does he use them what is their context what is their significance because those words normally refer to something right they normally refer to something and so Allah Azza wa Jal is referring to something by describing things using those words or mentioning things using those words that the Arabs didn't necessarily use in the everyday language use in terms of their general vernacular and so Allah Azza wa Jal mentions them in the Quran to show that it's something that we should focus on and so the scholars did so they focused on those words and they wrote and they wrote and they wrote concerning them so when it comes to these books we have a number of books on Gharib al-Quran so many books on Gharib al-Quran and what you will find is you will find that the scholars of Gharib al-Quran have different methodologies. Scholars of Gharib al-Quran have different methodologies when it comes to authoring their books. And the way that you see those methodologies is you see them in the way that they are that they write the that they, they formulate or they write their books. So just to give a another example, the books of hadith, right? The books of hadith. Generally speaking, the books of hadith, there are different methodologies of compiling hadith. So we have what we call the Masaneed, a Musnad, like Musnad of Imam Ahmad and the Musnad of others that you will find. A Musnad is a hadith that is compiled according to narrator. All of the hadith of Abu Bakr together, all of the hadith of Umar together, all of the hadith of Aisha together, of Abu Huraira together, of Ibn Abbas, or Ibn Umar together, and so on and so forth. That is called a Musnad. So if you were to pick up the Musnad of Imam Ahmad, that's what he does. Comes to the chapter of the Musnad of Abu Bakr, all of the hadith and written by Abu Bakr, he puts them in one place, irrespective of topic, irrespective of theme, irrespective of what's being, all of them are together. And likewise for all of the companions. That, that's what we call Musnad. That's a methodology of compiling hadith. We have a methodology of hadith that we call, that is sometimes also called Musnad, by the way, but sometimes it's also referred to as the Sihah, like Al-Bukhari and Muslim, or Al-Jawami, Al-Jami' like a Tirmidhi. Al-Jami' al-Sahih, which is the Sahih of Imam Bukhari. His actual name is Al-Jami' al-Sahih. These Jawami' what do they do? They mention many, many different topics of Islam. So their hadith are labeled according to chapter and topic, but they cover everything. Not only topics of fiqh, but they will cover tafsir, they will cover seerah, they will cover everything within them, aqidah, tawheed, everything together, and they will bring them together. They're called Jawami'. Then you have the books that are famously known as Sunan. And those books of the Sunan, are normally books of hadith that are compiled according to fiqh chapters. So they may have some other chapters that they included as well, but generally speaking, they're referring to fiqh chapters. And that's why they often begin with Kitab al-Tahara. That's how they often begin, as opposed to Bukhari and Muslim. No, they begin with Kitab al-Wahi or Kitab al-Iman or something else, and then they'll come on to those chapters as well, but later on. So these are different methodologies that we have. Likewise, in Qarib al-Quran, we have different methodologies in terms of how the scholars wrote their books. The first methodology is to have your book in accordance or uh, according to the words and how they appear in the Quran and the, and the order by which they appear in the Quran. So that scholar will start from Surah Fatiha and then Baqarah and every time they come across a word, then that's the word that they'll put in. And so they're going across the whole Qur'an in that way, which makes it easier in some ways, difficult in some ways as well. Easier because it's kind of similar to the books of Tafsir, because Tafsir goes through the Qur'an in that way, and so therefore it's easy to compare that book with this book, which is the book of Gharib al-Qur'an. Uh, it's easy for someone who, for example, memorizes the Qur'an or knows the Qur'an 
that this is the verse that I'm struggling with. Okay, let me go there. But it's also difficult in the case of someone who doesn't know the Quran, doesn't understand the Quran. But the vast majority of books are written in this way. Gharib al-Quran often refers to, or the methodology of authoring, often in terms of its order, is done in this way according to the way that they appear in the Qur'an from beginning to end. And this is the book of Ibn Qutaybah. And by the way, it's one of the most famous books in the Gharib al-Quran, the book of Ibn Qutaybah, because it is considered to be not too long, but at the same time very comprehensive and very well chosen in terms of the words that he mentioned and the meanings that he used to explain them. But the books of Ata and Ibn Mubarak and Qutaybah, and many of them, majority of the books of Gharib al-Quran, this is the methodology that they employ. The second methodology that you will find is according to alphabetical order. So what this will do, or these books will do rather, is they will look at the words according to the way that they would appear in the Arabic alphabets, alif, ba, ta, tha, according to that, irrespective of where they appear in the Quran. So sometimes the word may appear in the 10th juz, but because it begins with the alif, it's going to be found at the beginning, the first chapter of this book of Gharib al-Quran. So that's easy in a way, if you just want to look for something like a dictionary, it's like got that kind of format, but also harder in a way. And then they, those scholars who did this, they themselves differ in terms of how to use those words. So as you can imagine, as you know, the Arabic language uh, can have, it has the root word, and then it has many different variations from the root word. So it can be a verb, the verb can be for a singular male, can be for a female, could be for a plural, could be for a dual. And so you have all of those words. So some of the scholars, what they do is they mention them the way that they appear, irrespective. They won't change them. So if it says the plural of the male plural, they'll be mentioned as the male plural. If it's something else, they'll mention it in that way. Whatever it says in the Quran, that's what they copy and paste, but they just do it according to alphabetical order. And from those books that did this is a book that is called Nuzhatul Qulub by Al-Azizi. Nuzhatul Qulub by Al-Azizi. Another way of using the alphabetical order, other scholars, what they did, is that they went back to the root word. So if the word is a plural, they would take it back to its root word. If the word is a verb, they would take it back to its original root verb. So for example, ya'kulun, they would take back to akala. Akala is the root verb. Ya'kulun means they ate in the plural. But they ate, what is the actual word, the root word, the verb that it comes from? Akala. So that's what they do. And there's someone that did that is Al-Raghib al-Asfahani, Rahimahullah, in his book Al-Mufradat. And then others, what they did is that they did the, they used the Arabic uh, alphabet again, but they made it more like, um, they made it more like a dictionary. So for example, in Alif, then what they're going to begin with in the Alif chapter is the next letter that comes is Ba. So Alif, Alif, then Alif, Ba, then Alif, Ta, then Alif, Ta, and that's what they do. And other scholars do the opposite. They look at the first letter and the third letter as opposed to the middle letter. So if it's Akala, it will be Alif, Lam. They miss out the middle letter. And, the, and so you have to understand, like Abu Hayyan often does this in his book on Gharib al-Quran. And so this is something which is important to understand at the beginning by reading the introduction, what is the methodology of this scholar in their book in Gharib al-Quran? And I mentioned this, otherwise it becomes very confusing to go through a book like uh, Gharib al-Quran and you don't really understand to find the word that you're looking for, becomes very difficult. So the books that you will find, the majority of them, 
go through the first one, which is just how they appear in the Quran in that order. But then you have this methodology, which is to make it more like a dictionary, easier to use, uh, quicker perhaps to find what you're looking for. But then those scholars differ in terms of exactly which way that word should be uh, mentioned within those books. The third methodology that you will find, which is very interesting, um, and many of the scholars who, who started this and did this, I don't know if they finished it or if they were able to do a comprehensive job of it, but the methodology is to combine between the gharib in the Qur'an and the gharib in the hadith. Then common words found in the Qur'an, then common words found in the hadith. And so someone who did this is Abu Ubaid al-Harawi, for example, and Ibn al-Bari. These are two scholars who wrote a book in which they tried to combine both sciences just to make it easier for a student of knowledge to refer to. So that's in terms of the authoring. But the general methodology that they use in terms of how to, um, how to have this knowledge or, or what are the main principles used in this knowledge, I have two or three that I want to share with you. The first of them is that the word has to be peculiar, has to be uncommon and strange. Now I mentioned this and even though it seems obvious that it has to be peculiar, uh, a word has to be gharib in order for it to be a book in the book of gharib al-Quran. But actually it's not so simple because what is gharib? Who determines whether a word is strange or not? Who determines that? So what may be strange to you may not be strange to me and what may be strange to me may not be strange to you and what may be strange to all of us may not be strange to an imam like Ata and Ibn Mubarak and Qutayba, Ibn Qutayba and all of, these, uh, all of these famous imams. So who decides? So the answer to that question is that they decide and that's why you will have many differences amongst them. If you were to have five or six books of Gharib al-Quran, you will find a word that all six of them mention, words that only one of them mention, words that only two or three or four mention, words that maybe none of them mention, because they're not really gharib, even though for us they may seem like that. And so that's something which you will find within them. So for example, the word salah, in both of its dual meanings, the example that we gave, whether it's to do with the linguistic meaning, which means dua and supplication, or the, the other meaning, which is the salah that we offer in terms of the salah and the prayer. Some of the scholars don't mention either of them in Gharib because they don't consider them to be strange. They consider that to be understood and well known through its context. But another scholar may come and mention that because they can understand where someone may misunderstand, someone may have a, have a misconception in terms of the meaning or the context in which it is used. And this is something which is also important because not only do they decide, but sometimes the scholars themselves may not necessarily know or have a good understanding of what is being uh, referred to as well because people's levels of knowledge as we know also differ and that's why as we said at the beginning the famous statement of Imam al-Shafi'i that no one really understands and knows a language except for a prophet as al-Shafi'i mentions that Imam al-Shafi'i himself as we know was a Imam of the Arabic language um, so uh, so that's one thing that's one principle to remember that not every word will be found in every book and that's why it's important sometimes and we have it's easier now because you have these websites and programs that allow you to put in a keyword and then to bring up a number of references so even if it's not found in every single one you'll find it in some and you won't find it in others um, another thing that they will do though many of them is as we mentioned in the example of the word salah they will look at words with multiple meanings 
So words that can mean different things in different contexts. That's something which they will also, generally speaking, look at. Uh, they will also look at another principle that they use, number three, is that they will look at the context that the word is being mentioned in and therefore determine through context what is being referred to. So a good example of this is the word ummah. The word ummah in the Arabic language, usually when people hear this, they think that it means nation, which it does. As Allah says in the Quran, We sent to every single nation a messenger. So that's a very common use of the word ummah. And today when we speak about the ummah of Islam or the ummah of the Prophet وسلم, or the umam as-sabiqah, the previous nations, that's what we're referring to. But the word ummah also has different meanings. From the meanings of the word ummah is role model. A role model. As Allah mentions concerning the Prophet Ibrahim Inna Ibrahima kana ummah. Ibrahim was an ummah. And what it means here is that he was a role model. Not that he was a nation, that he was a role model, someone that you should look up to and take after. From the meanings of the word ummah is a passage of time. A passage of time. As Allah says in Surah Yusuf, concerning the story in Surah Yusuf when he's in prison and he has two uh, inmates with him. One of them, he knows he's going to be saved, going to go and serve the king. So what does he say to him? He says to him, go to the king and tell him of my story. But shaitan makes him forget. When the king sees the dream, what, does, what happens to that man? He remembers. Allah Azza wa Jal says in the Quran, وَدَّكَرَ بَعْدَ أُمَّةٍ وَدَّكَرَ بَعْدَ أُمَّةٍ He remembered after an ummah. An ummah meaning a great passage of time or a passage of time. So the word ummah has different meanings depending upon the context. So sometimes the word can have dual meanings and sometimes the meaning of the word is determined by the context. So this is always something which you will find. So some of the books of Gharib al-Quran, they will go into this detail and they will say this is what the word means. But if it's mentioned in this context, this is what it means and so on. So some of these books are shorter, as we can imagine, and some of them are greater. I wanted to conclude uh, this special by just giving some examples from some of these books of um, Gharib al-Qur'an, some that we mentioned in terms of the, you know, the 10 that we mentioned earlier on, and some that we didn't mention. But just to give you an example of how they cover this, and inshallah ta'ala then we'll conclude unless there's any questions. So Ibn Qutayba, for example, in his book, Gharib al-Qur'an, in the statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, al-waswas al-khannas, in surah al-nas, min sharri al-waswas al-khannas, he says, which means the retreating whisperer. He says that Iblis that Iblis comes and he whispers to people in their chests and in their hearts. So if Allah is remembered, he He retreats and he stops, meaning he stops whispering and he retreats, he runs away. So that's an example of the way that Gharib al-Qur'an works. The author will bring the verse and then he will mention in a succinct way or a more detailed way. And, and we'd have a lack of time on those. I was going to give some of the longer passages that you will find in some of the books of Al-Raghib al-Asfahani and Al-Harawi and, and others that go through this in great detail. Uh, but I thought it would just take too much time. So I wanted to just give you examples from uh, verses that we've covered already in our QP, surahs that we've covered. And by the way, I do refer to books of Gharib al-Quran 
either directly or indirectly through other books of tafsir because sometimes Al-Qurtubi will mention this as the judge said Ibn Atiyah often does this like the books that focus on Arabic language will often mention the position of Al-Farra and as the judge and Ibn Qutayba and others from amongst the scholars who wrote in Gharib Al-Quran and so you either go directly to their books and sometimes you can find it indirectly also uh, so we do mention and that's why you come across these names some of them and, and heard of them before um, and so it is something which, which we do in QP. To give another example, the example of a Zajjaj, who is one of the famous scholars of the Arabic language, he has also a book on, on the on the Gharib of the Quran. Uh, in the in the Surah uh, Surah Nasr, in the statement of Allah Azza wa Jalla, the verse in which Allah Azza wa Jalla says, nasa fi afwaja," and you will see the people entering into the house into the region of Allah in droves. He says the meaning of afwaja jamaatin kathira, in great groups, in many groups. Meaning after you saw a messenger of Allah, people entering into Islam individually or in twos and threes, now whole tribes will come and all of them will enter into the fold of Islam. Another example of this is the Gharib uh, Al-Quran by Al-Farra, who is another famous scholar of the Arabic language. This time from the first verse in Surah Al-Adiyat, Al-Adiyat, Dabha. And as we mentioned, that refers to the hooves of the horses as they hit the ground and then sparks come from their hooves. Whether it's the horses or whether it's the camels, depending upon the two tafsirs that we mentioned. But here, Al-Farraq chose the, the, the tafsir of Ibn Abbas, عنهما, that it's referring to horses. والضبيح, he said, the word It's referring to the panting of the horses as they're running. As they're running at full speed, a full gallop, the panting of those horses as they run. Another example of this is the Gharib al Quran of Ma'mar ibn Muthanna. And Ma'mar ibn Muthanna is one of the famous scholars of the Salaf. He also wrote a book on Gharib al Quran. In the verse, verse number 10 of Surah Al Balad, when Allah says, As we mentioned before, and we guided him to the two paths, he said, he said, Najdain refers to the two paths that you can take that are elevated. One is referring to the path of good and the other is referring to the path of evil. So these are just some examples that I wanted to mention to you um, and just to give you like some examples of how Gharib al-Quran works. And as I said, there could have been many more, um, but I didn't want to make this special too long. Uh, but as always, what we try to do with these specials is just to give a broad general understanding of how the science works the kind of books that have been written, the kind of methodologies that are being followed, and how important they are for a student of tafsir to be familiar with. So with that, if there's any questions, inshallah ta'ala, um, can we, uh, if there's no questions, inshallah, we'll conclude. Um, and, and for those of you that are interested, I would just recommend that you, uh, for example, download one of his books. I would recommend even Qutayba's book. It's a very nice book. Uh, you can get it online, you can get it as a PDF, you can get it as a on Shamila for those of you obviously it's in Arabic. I don't know by the way of any of these books that have been translated into English, but if someone does know, I suppose there's not really much point either in the sense that the uh, translation of the Quran perhaps is chosen يعني, from one of those Gharib al-Qur'ans in that sense, right? So the translators, as we've said before, have to choose a tafsir. And the tafsir will usually be one of those positions that the scholars chose that that word is referring to. But anyway, 
Um, if you were to go to the Arabic, like the book of Ibn Qutayba, which I would recommend, or any of those other ones, just so that you can get a sense of what is being referred to and how it works and so on, I think it's something which you would find beneficial uh, for those of you that speak Arabic and understand the Arabic language. But inshallah ta'ala, we'll, we'll conclude here. And inshallah ta'ala, next week, then we continue with the tafsir that we're doing and the tafsir of Surah Al-Inshiqaq, inshallah ta'ala, which is the next surah that we will be going on to. So with that, inshallah ta'ala, we'll conclude for today. Jazakumullah khayran, barakallahu feekum, wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in, wa assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.